we are approaching Rosh Hashanah, and the custom is to, Gemara says actually, Gemara discusses the Torah readings of the year, and it has a couple of, uh, I say benchmarks in terms of how the reading of the Torah is organized. Very striking Gemara. The Gemara says that before the holiday of Shavuot, we are always reading the blessings and the curses of the book of Ayikra, called Torah Kohanim. And before Rosh Hashanah, we are reading the blessing and the curses of the book of Dvarim, Mishnah Torah. And that's accurate, actually. We do that, except for one small detail that the Tosfus already raised the problem. Tosfus points out that we don't actually read the blessings and the curses of Fayikwa the week before Shavuot, and nor do we ever read the blessings and curses of Devarim before Rosh Hashanah. In the case of Shavuot, it's usually two weeks before, and on some rare occasions, three weeks. And uh, on Rosh Hashanah, it's always the same. On Rosh Hashanah, it's always two weeks before. So the blessings and the curses is that this week's parish is the week after, Kitavo. That's a week from the Shabbos. The following Shabbos is we are reading Nitzavim. I forget if it's one parish or two this year. And then that, that week is Rosh Hashanah. So it's, in terms of Rosh Hashanah, it's always two weeks before. Always without exception. Because the way it's plotted out, it starts with Tisha B'Av and you have the seven weeks of consolation. <laughs> And after the seventh week of consolation is always Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah is always two weeks, not the parish, not, not right after the blessings and the curses, but the following week. So the question is why? Why, why is that so? How do we understand this, this custom, which is actually very central because it's one of the real linchpins of the way we organize the readings around the year. The readings around the year are organized around these readings. So, the Tosafists have different possible answers to that question. One answer is that we don't want to read the blessings and the curses just before Rosh Hashanah. You don't want to get you know, to Rosh Hashanah with all these, get the curses are much longer than the blessings. So we don't want to move into Rosh Hashanah with these horrible curses. So we read the curses and the blessings, then we wait a week, and then we have Rosh Hashanah. That's one answer Tosafists gives. Then there's another possible answer which is this, that the blessings and the curses of the book of Devarim, which we have a Tanakh, you'll see, chapter 28, curses being very, very long. But the truth is that these words of the covenant, Devarim, that the covenant does not end in chapter 28, even though the Torah says, Ewa Devrei Habrit. That's not the end of the covenant. The end of the covenant, it takes place later. Because the covenant is related to what follows as well. The covenant, which is the blessings and the curses, end with some terrible curses, the last of which is that God will send you back to Egypt in boats. On page 438. On the path that I said to you, you will never see again. You will sell yourselves there as male and female slaves, but none will buy you, and probably the better interpretation is none will buy you back. Come back to the slave, none will redeem you. 
These are the words of the covenant. So the Ramban on the spot says, what? One second. This is the way you end the covenant? You'll be sold to slaves in Egypt and then buys you out? What a way to end the covenant. So the Ramban says, no, no. The covenant does not end at this point. The covenant continues. This is part of the covenant, but it's not the whole covenant. And the covenant continues, and when the Ramban says, when you read later, chapter 30, on page 440, the good news is page 440, because the page 440 is After all these things happen to you, the curse, the blessing and the curse that I have placed before you. After all that happens, you will take to heart. Take to heart. Wherever you may find yourself. Wherever you may happen to be, far flung places that God has sent you, you will take to heart the blessings and the curses. And then begins in verse number two. Well, verse number one says, You take to heart. Verse number two, You will return to God. You and your children with all your soul, with all your heart. Then God will will restore, bring back Shavutcha. Here they translate your fortunes. One might say, restore you from where you are and have mercy upon you. Vishav, and God will return. God will bring you back from all the places you were scattered. <coughs> Even if you were scattered to the edges of heaven, God will bring you back from that place, Misham. God will bring you back to the land that God that your ancestors inherited and inhabited and you will be made even more numerous and more prosperous and better than your ancestors God will circumcise or open your heart and the heart of your descendants God will again open your heart to love God. And the curses, all these curses, will be placed on your enemies. You will return. Keep the commandments. God will grant you prosperity in all the works of your hands. God will return to rejoice over you for good, just as God rejoiced over your ancestors. Right? When you obey God and keep God's commandments, when you return to your God with all your heart and all your soul. These are 
ten verses in chapter 30. So the ten verses in chapter 30 say one important thing, actually many. One of them is, no matter wherever you're scattered, it says, even to the farthermost corners of heaven, from there God will bring you back. So the Ramban says, at the end of chapter 28 it said, I will send you back to Egypt in boats, on the path that you thought you'd never see again, and you'll be sold to slaves, no one will purchase you. So the Ramban says that's not the end of the story, because in chapter 30 it says something different. No matter where you may be, not only in Mitzrayim, even in the Ksayah Shemayim, the farthermost corners of heaven, from there God will bring you back. From there God will gather you in. So the Ramban says, this parsha, which we call the parsha of, parsha of repentance, the parsha of tshuva, is intimately bound up with the end of chapter 28. And perhaps, I add, that's the reason we read this parsha before Rosh Hashanah. Parsha's Nitzavim is always ready for Rosh Hashanah. What better time to read Parsha's Nitzavim, Parsha Tshuva, than just before Aseret Yimei Tshuva, for Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of the ten days of repentance, leads us to Yom Kippur. So that's in terms of why we read Parsha's Nitzavim always before Rosh Hashanah. Makes a lot of sense. But that this Parsha of Tshuva is very interesting and related to our theme here. First of all, let me point out something else about to support what the Ramban says. He doesn't say this himself, but it supports him. And that is, when you read the end of chapter 28, the last verse of this curse, blessing and curse, the last verse is, God will send you back to Egypt in boats. The Hebrew is the Heshivcha. God will send you back. Heshivcha. God will cause you to return to Egypt. So Heshuv is the verb, to return. When you read chapter 30, what you notice immediately in chapter 30 is that the verb to return appears a grand total of seven times. Seven. It actually begins with that way. It begins in verse number one, after the blessing and the curse, curse mentioned second, that I have placed before you, you will consider or take to heart your situation, wherever you may find yourself. And if you reach at these the next next nine verses, you see that the verb washuv appears over and over again. In verse number two, Vishafta Hashem Lokecha, that's the second time you have it. Verse number three, Vishav Hashem Lokecha, that's three. And again, Vishav Ikibetcha is four. Right? Um Shivutcha maybe is also possible, right? That could be five, maybe. Um and then you have later on uh in verse number 8, Right? Then you have in verse number 8, And finally, in verse number 10, If we count Shavutcha, it's eight times. If without Shavutcha, it's seven times. And what's interesting is that it, in terms of not just the number of the times that we have this verb, Roshuv, but actually, who was the who was the subject of Washuv is very striking. Of course, in four times, four of the verbs refer to us. right? That's us. But three of the times refers to God. The last of which, God returns to rejoice over you for good as God rejoiced over your ancestors. So it's interesting 
if you break the verb or shuv down, sometimes it refers to God returning to the people, and sometimes it refers to the people returning to God. That's actually an important point we'll come back to, but all of it is related, I presume, to the last verse of chapter 28. God will return you back to Egypt in boats. That's what it says in 28. But that's not the end of the story, because in chapter 30 it says you can always make it back anyway, even if you're in the cornermost, the farthermost corners of, of, of heaven. You can always make it back. So that supports the Ramban. That actually, 30 and 28 are related to each other. 30 is part of the covenant, the parasha of Tshuva, and we read before Rosh Hashanah. On other occasions, several occasions, I talked about the following point. Don't want to get too much into this now, but I made the following observation about chapter 30. That although what the Ramban says is no doubt right, there's no question about that, we can still ask a question to the Ramban, which is a very simple question. How come, for example, in the blessings and the curses of Vayikra, that we'll get back to in a minute because it's related to our topic, there the Torah says the following, I will throw you out of the land, but even in your places of dispersion, I have not rejected you, and I will bring you back. I remember my covenant with Yaakov and Yitzchak and Abraham, and I'll bring you back to the land. But I haven't forsaken you, I haven't rejected you. That's all in that same chapter, in Vayikra, chapter 26. How come in the book of Devarim, the Torah split it? The Torah ends chapter 28 by saying, these are, these, are, these are the words of the covenant, I'll send you back to Mitzrayim. And you've got to wait two, two chapters to find out that it's not hopeless, that we can always make it back. Why did the Torah do that? Keep us in suspense. Why didn't the Torah simply say in chapter 28, I will send you back to Egypt in boats, but... In Egypt or wherever, if you take to heart, there's always a way back. Why did the Torah not do that? Why did the Torah torture us until the following week? We read the parasha. We think it's hopeless. And you read chapter 30, so it's not hopeless. Why did the Torah split it that way? And Vayikra doesn't split it. That's a good question. Ramban's not here to answer us. I'll answer for the Ramban. And the answer, I think, is, the good answer is this, that there's a difference, actually the Rabban could actually say this answer, because he didn't agree with this point, but that's another story. The point is that the Rabban has another question. Why are the two Tokachas all together? We need two for. That's the Rabban asked that question. Why do you need two? So the Rabban has his own answer. That's my answer. That's not what the Rabban says. The Rabban has a different answer. The Ramban's answer is that the two different Tokachas refer to two different historical events. The first is the first exile, and the second is the second exile. That's the Ramban. The Ramban does this in many places where he tries to connect biblical verses to future events. It's not my own, personally, it's not my cup of tea, I've got to tell you. But anyway, the Ram, I had a different answer, which I like much better, obviously. So I said it. And that is that the two Tokachas refer not to two different historical events, but to two generations. The first Tocha, Moshe addresses the slaves who left Egypt. The second Tocha, in Vitzvarim, Moshe addresses the people who were never in Egypt. They're free people. So as far as the slaves are concerned, the return is built into the, to, to, the, to the curse. Because it's not expected that the people can make it back by themselves. Because they're slaves. So God says, if you do something, we'll get to it, namely confession, <coughs> then I will help you, I'll bring you back. 
haven't forsaken you under certain circumstances, given the conditions, I'll bring you back. But the second Telchucha, I will send you back to Egypt in boats. That's talking about people that were never in Mitzrayim in the first place. They're free people. So God says, I'll send you back to Mitzrayim in boats, and no one's going to bail you out. Ain't Konan, nobody will bail you out. But, in chapter 30, there's a new parsha called Parsha HaTshuva, and that's different. No one's going to bail you out, no one's going to save you, no one's going to redeem you, but you can, you can redeem yourselves, or you can at least begin the process of redemption. That's why the Torah splits it. Torah splits is God saying, I'm sending you back to Mitzrayim. That's, that's my story. But you can make it back anyway. And if you start to take that first step, I'll be with you and we'll have an interactive process of, of redemption, of return. So that's the power of Tshuva, chapter 30, verses 1 to verse number 10. It's an awesome parasha, actually. And it's really a parasha that deals at length with, uh, with, 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 with repentance. Meshav. And here there's a focus, notice, in this parasha of Tshuva, chapter 30. Notice the f- phrase that appears more than once. I didn't count them up. But the idea of Bechol Vavcha Bechol Nafshecha. Bechol Vavcha Bechol Nafshecha that's a phrase we're familiar with from the Shema, which is also in Sefer Dvarim. Bechol Vavcha Bechol Nafshecha is a Dvarim phrase. It doesn't appear elsewhere. Bechol Reva Nefesh is Dvarim. And just in second, let's see where it appears here. It's Vashivot Elo Vavcha in verse number one. Verse number two is Bechol Vavcha Bechol Nafshecha. It appears again over there. Then it appears, once again, the lave. And then you have, um, in the last verse, verse number 10, Kitoshuva, Hashem, Lokecha, Becholavavcha, Becholavavcha, Sefer Dvarim, much more than the other books of the Torah, is very much focused on people's feelings. Avas Hashem, Yiras Hashem, these kind of feelings to fear God, to love God, to serve God with all of one's heart and soul. That's a Devarim theme. Yeah? Right, so that is actually connected to the Tokha, which is not Hashem, but it's Yeah, yes, right. Right. Yes, it's true. That also connects it to the Tokha as well, that you didn't serve God with a full heart. Whatever the heart signifies in the Torah, it probably means the mind, but it doesn't matter. The point is that expression is very much a safe expression. All your heart and all your soul. This is chapter 30, verses number 1 through 10. It's known colloquially as the parish of Tshuva. Now we get to verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. So let's see what those verses say. Go right ahead. That's right. I'm not sure they're connected to each other, actually. This I don't know. They're making two separate statements that the way these Torah cycle is being presented. What is Shavuos doing there in the first place? So that's a good question. So one is called Hatzeres, whatever. That's a good question. I mean, that is the way that it works, in, in fact. I suppose Rosh Hashanah leads you into Yom Kippur. I guess Rosh Hashanah is the 
Rosh Hashanah's preliminary to Yom Kippur. It's the first day of the seventh month. So it augurs in, one might say, both Yom Kippur and Sukkot, that's for sure. Good question. I don't know. Why not? Right. So there seems to be right. There seems to be a. I think it's very significant. In other words, I think what you have is an interactive process over here. It starts with Hashem Botel Levavecha. Then you have Umal Hashem Olkech Levavcha V'Yed Levavzarecha, which seems to be a further step along this path of awakening one's heart or fully dedicating one's heart to God and that somehow in, in this text in any event in chapter 30 the human being makes the first step sometimes in our prayers we ask to God to take the first step bring us back to you and we'll we, we, return seems to be the opposite that you, you take the first step and bring us back and then we'll, then we'll return we're asking God to take the first step here. We take the first step, but God is enhancing what we first do. So it's a good, very good point that God is improving upon what we have done. There's something else interesting about this idea of in relation to tshuva, since you asked the question, I will make the following observation, and that is, the idea that this is part of the covenant. This is related to the covenant, which is uh, referred to at the end of chapter 28. Um, the, the idea that the covenant, which means the covenant is a kind of eternal relationship. So you can't actually, you can, you can, you can nullify, you can, you can disregard the covenant, you can break the covenant. But the covenant always has within it the opportunity to be um, to to be re, to be re, uh, re, uh, reignited or, or or to start up once again, and um, the point that I think is the idea of Hashem is that since it's always possible to change who you are, that's the idea. Now, since you're never stuck with who you are, you can always morph into something else. That gives the opportunity to, to, to relate to the eternal God. Because the fact that you have a certain point in your life this way doesn't mean that you can't be different uh, a week from now. Be a different person. Because you're a different person always affords the opportunity of the covenant once again being of, 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 of reconnecting to God. In any event, these are the first ten verses. Now we come to verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. So here there's an interesting question. Kiyam mitzvah hazot for this commandment, if they trans this instruction, capital I, I know what that is. For this instruction that I command you today, it's not too wondrous for you, it's not too far away. It is not in the heavens. Lemar, as if to say, it's not in the heavens, so one could say, how, how, can, how can one go up to heaven? How can one go up to heaven and get it for us, and teach us that we may observe it? It's not on the other side of the ocean either. 
Raymar, that one could say, Miyavra Lano, Abrahayam, Ikochel Lano, the Ashmina Otavinasena, who could cross the other side of the ocean and bring it to us? It's not so. Kikarove Lecha Hadavar Maod, for this is, this matter, this thing is very close, very close to you. Beficha Uvilvavkala Soto, in your mouth and your heart, to, to observe it. Here the commentaries are divided. Very basic question. What is the subject of HaMitzvah Hazot? What is it referring to? For this commandment is not too difficult. It's not impossible. What are they referring to? What, what is that impossible? It's not in the heavens. What Robert Shemayimi. Same page I was on before. 441. 441. It starts on 441. It goes over to 442. Okay. The bottom of 441. And the top of 442. What is it in verse number 11, this mitzvah, which is not too wondrous and not too far away, not in the heavens, not on the other side of the, of the ocean, that is if you could say it's too difficult, we can't get there. So does it just mean the covenant that they were talking about? Does it mean the covenant? It could be the covenant. Mitzvah sounds like, mitzvah sounds like instruction, sounds like command. Mitzvah. Which is the mitzvah? So here the commentaries are divided. The Gemara, of course, famous Gemara, famous story, Rabbi Tadosh Rachnai, the famous Gemara. So the Gemara tells of a famous story of dispute between Rabbi Eliezer and the other Chachamim. Uh, so they were fighting about a particular situation of Tum and Tara. So Rabbi Eliezer said Tahar, and they said Tameh. So, so Rabbi Eliezer said, if I'm right, maybe uh, the walls of the Beit Midrash start to cave in and other kinds of miracles, which all took place. Now the rabbis, when they saw this, they just they discounted it. They said, It's not in the heavens, which means the Torah is not in the heavens. So in other words, the decisions about what's right and wrong, in terms of practical law, that's not determined by God in the heavens, it's our, it's our Torah. So once this Torah is given to people, people use their best judgment in making decisions, but so Rabbi Shemayimi, in that interpretation, refers to the Torah. The Torah is not in the heavens. The Torah is given to humanity, to the Jewish people, whatever. So it's our Torah. So don't think you have to go up to the heavens to get the Torah. You have, you have the Torah already. It's with you. It's not too wondrous. It's not, don't say, how can we possibly know it? It's yours. You can know it. Study it, you know it. It's yours in your mouth and your heart to do it. That's one possibility as to what the subject of HaMitzvah Hazot it's one possibility there is however another possibility which is also a good possibility what is the subject of Ki HaMitzvah Hazot for this commandment is not too wondrous and not too difficult and not too far away and not inaccessible according to this other possibility the mitzvah that's being referred to is the mitzvah of this chapter which is, which is tshuva repentance for this, this, this mitzvah it's called, the Torah calls it a mitzvah. The mitzvah, in other words, of, re, of, of repentance. The mitzvah of repentance, don't think it's too difficult to do tshuva. It's not too difficult. Possible. And who, which commentary? I don't know which one says that, but that's okay. a simple... Okay. Let's put it this way. We can go back and find which... I know that the, the uh, Svano says it, the starters, but... Forget the commentaries. When you open up the Chumash, you see for yourself. It's actually ambiguous what it's referring to. Yes? I find this, these few verses, revolutionary. 
In what sense? In the sense that it has to do with what's going on inside of us. I mean, it's very relevant to today when we're all very self-centered about our own emotions and that's what the high holidays are. So we're not repenting as a community, repenting as individuals, which isn't where it all started from. But I find this truly, it's like, I find it amazing these universes. Well, actually, they're amazing no matter which interpretation you take. What? They're amazing from both perspectives. First of all, if we first to the Torah, it's also amazing. It's not in the heavens. It's not God's Torah anymore. It's the human Torah. That's pretty amazing. But the other point about repentance, which is very striking, is making a statement about the possibility of change. Maybe it's overstating its case. I don't know. It's not as simple as one might think. And then, but the point is, that And here we come to a verse that for our purposes is very important. Verse number 14. The matter is near to you. Very close. In your mouth and your heart to observe it. What does it mean in your mouth? In your heart we understand. We had the heart the whole time. What does it mean, Ficha, Yes. Right, so the Rambam says, the Rambam has a thing called Hilchot Shuvah, first of all. It's an amazing composition. The Rambam of Mishnah Torah. He makes a lot of stuff up. In other words, that means he makes up, he makes new categories up. Never heard of such a thing. Hilchot Shuvah. Hilchot Pesach, we know. Shabbos, we know. You know what I mean? But Hilchot Shuvah, the Rambam made up a thing called Hilchot Shuvah. The laws of repentance, which is an amazing. In the ten chapters, Hilchos Shuvah. You're incredible, actually. So the Rambam, in the beginning of each of his uh, sections of his book, he has a little thing on top. He lists the various mitzvot. He lists the mitzvot. So in Hilchos Shuvah, there's one mitzvah. The mitzvah is, I wish I had the Rambam in front of me now. The mitzvah is to Shuvah. The Rambam says the mitzvah of doing Shuvah involves that the person should confess that one should confess one's sins says the Rambam it's the mitzvah of tshuva so here it's actually very interesting Rabbi Salavashik if you remember used to give tshuva drashas each year it would be terrific actually we often focus on the Rambam but not just the Rambam he took the Rambam and went amazing places with it so here he, one of his, one of his, he had many different things he liked to say about what he saw, Rachel working. And he made the following distinction, in which he applied to many different situations. He distinguished between two different things. He distinguished between what what the mitzvah actually is, what is this mitzvah about, what is it really. That's one thing. He distinguished between that and what action is required to do the mitzvah. He developed a whole set of possibilities where you do X, but the mitzvah is not actually doing X. The mitzvah is X brings you to something else. He was trying to maintain a distinction, which was very important for him, between action on one hand, which he thought was necessary, the raw halach is a set of actions for the most part, but it doesn't uh, actually consist only of action, because 
the real myths to take you to a different place. One of the many examples he gave was tshuva. Tshuva is not a, a speech act. But the, the, the act, the formal act of tshuva, he, he argued, was a statement that you make, but it presupposes, of course, that the statement that you make actually takes you to a different place. For example, the Mishnah says, he was fond, I think, of quoting the following question of the Minchas Chinuch. The, the Mishnah says in Kedushin, Mishnah has cases where a man wants to marry a woman, and he makes some kind of stipulation. Or the Tznai, makes a stipulation. What happens if it's not true? So the Gemara says, a man said to a woman, I will marry you on condition that I am a, uh, a, 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 a tzaddik, he said. I will marry you on condition that I am a tzaddik. So the, so the, 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 the what? Well, the Mishnah says the Mishnah says that even though we even though we have a, a record of being a criminal or whatever it is, we still have to be concerned. Maybe the condition is valid. How could it be valid? Maybe when he was making the statements, he was thinking about tshuva in his heart. So the Minchas Chinuch, of course, asks the following question. He says, "I don't understand." But the Rambam says that for tshuva to be valid. You have to do this, you have to, you have to, you have to verbalize. Or he maybe did in his heart. That, that's not tshuva. Of course the answer is obvious. The answer is that, in terms of fulfilling the mitzvah of tshuva, maybe you require a speech act. But in terms of whether the guy's a tzaddik or a rasha, that speech is irrelevant to that. Because the point is, he can say whatever he wants. If he actually did tshuva in his heart, that's what counts. He's, so he's not in a rasha anymore. He's determined in his heart to go on a different path. So there are two different things. One is the formal act that's required, which we call vidui, or confession. That's what the Rambam says, that there's a mitzvah of vidui, which is part and parcel of tshuva. That mitzvah of tshuva consists of vidui. That's not to say, said Rabbi Soloveitchik, that vidui is itself sufficient. Of course not. The vidui is what gets you to the place we call tshuva. Shemel hired tshuva bulibo. It's a mitzvah that takes place inside one's own psyche and one's heart. So that's, anyway, that's the way the Rambam is reading this Pasuk. He didn't make it up. In your heart and in your mouth. Mouth and heart. So mouth refers to the formal act of tshuva, which the Rambam called vidui, or confession. So I thought it would be interesting to explore the relationship between this idea of vidui in general, where it appears, in our tradition, what it signifies, etc., both in the, some of the legal texts and also in some of the narratives we have between. So that's, anyway, this is the parasha of Tshuva, chapter 30 of Tevarim, beautiful parasha. And again, the last few verses, do they refer to Torah, do they refer to Tshuva? It's hard to know. But anyway, verse 14 is understood by the Rambam and others to be referring to tshuva. Don't think it's impossible. Don't think it's impossible to change your ways. It's not impossible. It's very near to you, in your mouth and your heart, to do it. To observe it, to do it. Tshuva requires speech, requires a resolution in your heart, and then to do it, it requires setting a, 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 new, a different kind of behaviors. A set of behaviors 
which is Rasotel. So these are the three necessary components of Tshuva, the Ficha, the Peh, the Wave, and of course Rasotel to do it. So I think we could begin by looking at <coughs> a different parsha, which actually speaks about concession, actually speaks about Bibli. And that's not the Tochacha of the Sefer Devarim, which is chapter 28, and it's the expanse of 29 and 30 and all that, but actually the first Tochacha in the Chomish, which is in the book of Vayikra, the ones you read before Shavuot. There's a custom, by the way, just you should know this, the custom, that there's a little poem that is often recited I don't, I doubt anybody here says this, right? But, uh, maybe that was far. Any far in here? Nobody? So there's a little poem. We, we, we should say this, actually. The first night of Rosh Hashanah, there's a little poem, Achot Ketana. Anybody familiar with Achot Ketana? Nobody? That's bad, actually. Achot Ketana is a poem that the Sfarim recites. I wish I had it in front of me now. Achot Ketana, our little sister first Israel and the, 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 the tagline of it is the year and its curses should be should, should, should disappear should be ended that all the bad things that happened last year should stop now and the end is but the new year begin with its blessings so there's a very famous poem that is, the Svanim say it as, as they begin Rosh Hashanah. Because that's the, right? Because that's, and that's based on the, on the Gemara. That you read the blessings and the curses before Rosh Hashanah. So the, that is in front of me, I sing it to you. It's very pretty, so there's many tunes to it actually. But the one very well known Sephardic tune. No one's ever heard the Dabin? Okay, whatever. Achot Ketana. If you Google, you'll find it. Achot Ketana. Right? Anyway, uh, so that, that's, the, that's the custom, actually, that the first night of Rosh Hashanah... In Shul. Before my... I say myself, I sing it every, every Rosh Hashanah. Before... Some, the Svarim say it. So it's a very well-known view. It's very, very, very famous. I forgot who wrote it. I don't know about it. Anyway, that's the custom. So now... But there's also the blessings and the curses before Shavuos. <coughs> That's in Vayikra, chapter 26. So Vayikra 26, that's again, it starts on page, the, the negative stuff, stuff starts on page 270. For whatever reason, it starts always with blessings, then you move to the curses. And for whatever reason, the curses are two or three times the size of the blessings or more. Here the curses are very long, that is bad as Dvarim. It talks about the exile. The thing I will punish you sevenfold for your sins. Over and over again. Goes on and on and on and on and on. And then it talks about the fact that all the years, the punishment in Vayikra, the exile is a function in Vayikra. I'm not keeping Shemitah. It's actually a Shemitah here, Israel. Not keeping Shemitah. So I'm going to punish you all the years you didn't treat the land properly. He didn't allow the land to ride Pharaoh. He didn't keep the Sabbath of the land, so the Torah says, now you'll keep the Sabbath of the land because you won't be in the land. I'm going to throw you out. 
Then the land will be paid back in Sabbath years. Verse number 34 on page 271. Right? Then the land will repay, make up for its Sabbath years, or the years of its desolation. Then the land will rest and make up for its Sabbath years. Verse number 35. All the years of its desolation it shall be it shall rest. The years it didn't rest when you lived there. That's verse number 35. Then it goes on and on, the terrible things that will happen. And then, those who, on page 272, those that survive will be heartsick in the land of their enemies, right? And then they'll be heartsick about the sins of their ancestors, not just their own failings. And now, verse number 40. Verse number 40. They will confess. Here you have confession. They will confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, their ancestors. They trust in that they trespass against me. They were hostile to me. The next verse is I will also be hostile to them. When I in turn have been hostile to them and remove them to the land of their enemies, then shall their stubborn heart humble itself and they shall atone for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, I will remember, and I remember the land. The artist tells Abraham, the land which will be abandoned by them will make up its Sabbath years, on account of the fact that they rejected my laws, etc. Verse 44, But even in the land of their enemies, I have not rejected them. Right? I'm going to bring them back. So here, it's very curious. First of all, here we have confession mentioned explicitly. They will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Which actually we are doing, there are two different texts of the confession on, uh, on Yom Kippur. It's interesting. We say on Yom Kippur, confession is a Yom Kippur thing. There are no confessions on Rosh Hashanah. Strangely enough, you might think Rosh Hashanah would have confessions. Rosh Hashanah has no confessions. Rosh Hashanah, at least in the Ashkenazic world, I don't know about the Sephardim, Rosh Hashanah has no, has no slichos either. It's very, very strange, actually. We say no slichos on Rosh Hashanah. We say slichos Erev Rosh Hashanah, forever in the day. We say slichos the day after Rosh Hashanah, with a very long slichos, which is Tongadalia. Those are the long slichot that we say. The Ashkenazi go on forever. But on Rosh Hashanah itself, we have no slichot, and we have no vidu either. There are neither slichot nor confessions on Rosh Hashanah. Those are the two hallmarks of Yom Kippur service. But on Rosh Hashanah, we have neither. But here, here we talk about vidui. Is this for the shemitah, which sounds like the It sounds like, well, it's, sounds, shemitah is the example that's cited. Shemitah, I think, is symbolic of all the negative, because it talks about, it talks about generalities, Torah, Brit, 
Chukim, Mishpatim, but you're 100% correct. The only specific sin that's mentioned is actually Shemitah. So Shemitah becomes symbolic or emblematic of all the sins. And anyway, Yom Kippur is a vidu. We say on Yom Kippur, we say that God, we're not going to say we didn't sin. We don't say, right? Right? How can we say, Sadiqim anachnu v'lochatanu? We're not going to say in Yom Kippur that we are righteous people, innocent people who have not sinned. And there are two different texts, Aval. But truly, and it's, there are two different texts. One is Aval anachnu chatanu, but we have sinned. But the other more prevalent one is Aval anachnu v'avotenu chatanu. Anachnu v'avotenu chatanu, we confess our own sins and we confess the sins of our ancestors. Now that phrase, Avonachnu Babotenu Chatanu, is obviously lifted straight from the Chumash. It's verse number 40. They will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And the trespass, they have trespassed against me. So the Chumash, which here speaks about Vidui, Vidui seems to be a prerequisite in this chapter to be able to return to the land, right? They will confess, they will have confession, explicit with the word confession. It's What is very striking, however, in chapter 26 of Ayikra, unexpected, you would have expected the Chumash to say, when you confess your sins, I will bring you back to the land. The Chumash does not say that, actually. It says, far from it. It says, you will confess the sins and your sins of your ancestors, and the trespass you have trespassed against me, and you walk with me in a cold way or a hostile way. And verse 41 says something very different. In turn, I walk with them in, with hostility. I have brought them to the land of their, of their enemies until, until their wayward or stubborn heart has been broken, and then, and only then, they shall atone for their sins. So it sounds from this text, and then I will remember the covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. Then it says, but the land will be abandoned for so many years. I haven't fully abandoned them, I haven't forgotten them, I haven't rejected them. I'll remember the covenant I made earlier when I took them out of Egypt. I am, the, I am God. So what's striking is... Atonement is not confession. That's right. It sounds like they're two totally different things. It sounds from here that the confession may be necessary, but it's not sufficient, it sounds like. The atonement over here, the confession in chapter 26 is an insufficient condition to return to the land. In fact, when you look at chapter 26 carefully, it appears that there are three different things that are required in order to return to the land. Number one is confession. You need confession about the trespass they have trespassed against me. Number two, it sounds like in order to get back to the land, you have to pay back the Sabbath years. So what it sounds like, the Chumash emphasizes that, that the years that you're in exile is a payback to the years that you worked the land <coughs> during Shemitah. And number three, those two things are, don't appear to be sufficient in and of themselves either. Paying back the debt and confession seem to be insufficient. The third thing that seems to be very much emphasized over here in this chapter is the idea that God is remembering some kind of covenant. 
both the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's chapter, that's verse number 41, the Zohatiyah B'ti Yaakov, Abed B'ti Yitzchak, Abed B'ti Abraham Eskar. And then, in verse number 45, the I will remember the covenant that I made early on. Sounds like when I took them out of the land of Egypt, some kind of a covenant, but I took them out of Egypt to be their God on the Hashem. So it sounds like there are three different things that are required in order to return. And one of them is out of our control. <coughs> right. One is not in our control. One is a payback of the debt. Also maybe it is sent out of our control or in exile. And the other is the confession. Why is there no confession on Rosh Hashanah? I think there's no confession. I don't think there's fine enough confession either on Rosh Hashanah for the following reason. First of all, I don't think that Rosh Hashanah is a day of repentance. Let's stop with that. Not in the sense of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Yom Kippur. Shuv is about Yom Kippur. And Rosh Hashanah, that's not the theme of the davening. The theme of the davening of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. Standing before the king. Now the king is also a judge. So when you stand before the judge, you're in court suddenly, and the judge is this, has your record out, or whatever it is, you know. So what's the Rambam, Rambam would call it, uh, we, begin, we begin thinking about repentance. Here, 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 hooray tshuva. Suddenly you realize, and the show was a wake-up call, the Rambam calls it a wake-up call. The show was a remez, the Rambam says, to do, when you hear that chauffeur sounds, say, wake up, wake up. So I think Rosh Hashanah is not directly about repentance, actually. It begins a process because suddenly it's day of judgment. So when you're standing in judgment, then the obvious instinct is to say, oh, how can we, what, what can we do to make sure that the judgment is not negative? We begin thinking about repentance. But if Rosh Hashanah were a day of repentance, it would have slichus, it would have vidui. Those are the two hallmarks of the Yom Kippur service. We don't have neither on Rosh Hashanah. Which means that Rosh Hashanah is not really directly about repentance. It's about kingship. It has implications for us, but it's not about that. So, it's missing. It's, a- it's absent, and it's a very striking absence, especially the slichos, but even the vidui. And Yom Kippur is the opposite. Yom Kippur, we'll get to the vidui of Yom Kippur. We'll talk about vidui. We'll get to Yom Kippur has three different vidui. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Yom Kippur's vidui. Actually, he has even more than three. But go ahead, yeah. Is there a reason that um, the That's a good question. I do. Rashi comments on that. It's a good question. Why well, mention Jacob? I have, I have no good answer to that question. <coughs> As to why. Maybe the answer is this, actually. I'm talking here about exile. So I'm, we're talking about exile, the one who comes to the. the the one who represents exile is Jacob. Jacob was Jacob. Was, Jacob was the, was the right. Abraham goes temporarily to Egypt, okay, but he's basically living in the land. Isaac never leaves the land. Jacob is the one who confronts exile. So therefore, since this parasha deals in the most obvious way with Jews in exile, being outside the land, the person that comes to mind immediately, who actually is, is brought back from, from the house of Laban and also brought back from Egypt. He's brought back from both places. So the primary patriarch in that context is Jacob. That's probably out of the answer. I know. That's what I was thinking. In any event, 
you need all these three things. Now, what, what is that about? Why do we need all three? Why isn't, when you get to the parish in Zavarim, there's no mention of it. It mentions the Yavolt in the sense that I rob you of I'm going to rob you the same way. There's no sense in Zavarim that I'm going to save you because of the Yavolt. There's no sense whatsoever. There's no sense when you read the parish in Zavarim, chapter 30, I'm going to redeem you because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't say that. There's also no sense in Sefer Devarim about the land being lying fallow for X number of years. There's no mention of that whatsoever. And actually, it doesn't even directly mention Vizui. It mentions the Fichal of Okay, maybe that means refers to confession of some sorts, mouth and heart, but it certainly doesn't mention the word Vizui. So, what is that actually about? So I think what it strikes me it's about, and the difference between the two parashiyot is this. The parasha in Vayikra is, says the following, I will cast you out of the land. And somehow you want to make it back to the land. The way you make it back to the land is, says God, even when I threw you out in the first place, I didn't really reject you fully. I only cast you out temporarily. I have not rejected you, I have not forsaken you. I'm still your God no matter where you are. That's what it says in Vayikra. So that's the first. The second point is that even apart from you, as you pointed out before, you have a relationship with me through Avram, Yusuf, and Yaakov. The, the very fact that the Chumash has to mention Avram, Yusuf, and Yaakov, or Brit Rishonim, suggests that you, that we ourselves in exile, that we, we're not in the place to make it back ourselves. We, we need to rely upon Avram, Yusuf, and Yaakov. In and of ourselves, we can't get back there. I think it very much relates to what I said earlier about this first covenant. The covenant mostly is speaking to the slaves. These are people that were in Mitzrayim, and they always want to go back to Egypt. Throughout the Chumash, they always want to return. If you always want to return, it means you never left, basically. So therefore, the expectations that the Chumash has of these people is limited. We can't actually expect a slave who's not fully free to be able to make life choices, to make deep choices about where he or she may want to be, because they don't have it in them. Not really fully free people, only a free person, fully free person can make these kinds of choices. So therefore, in Sefer Vayikra, it's very limited. They were cast out. Okay, what, what, all right, we made bad, bad decisions, we get cast out, but even when I cast you out, says God, I didn't fully cast you out. I haven't fully forsaken you ever, even in exile. That's not true in the book of Tvarim. Say for Tvarim, we're not talking about people that were slaves. They were never slaves. They, they grew up in the desert. They're completely free people. As free people, they can make the choices. They can choose life or death, says the Chumash. They can make their choices. So therefore, there, since you can make those choices, it's up to you to make the choice. And when you make the choice, it's interesting, the confession of, 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 of Ayikra strikes me as very limited. Confession as a recognition of what you did. I'm sorry I did it, it was a mistake, I'm not going to do it again. That's one thing. But what you don't have in the book of Vayikra is the expression that we have in Devarim, the dominating expression, That's very different. The idea that you are committing yourself to God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your being, that's a Devarim theme, which I think the slave cannot do. 
Because the slave is actually in, in control of the slave's heart and soul. Partially, yes. But part of, part, of the, part of that slave, someone else has control over. That's what it means to be a slave. And the ones who left Egypt were never, ever fully free. They always, because they always want to go back. It means they never left. So to that extent, they can't be expected. The Torah has limited expectations. So the vidui, I think in Vayikra, in Pshat, is in place of, what stands in its place is the whole parasha of, of uh, Devarim. And I want to add something else to the parasha of Devarim. I want to repeat a very important point about parasha that Tshuva makes it so exceptional. That the parasha of Tshuva, in other words, in, in, in both Vayikra and Devarim, you have the people doing something and God doing something. Right? The people confess, and God says, I'm going to bring you back. Okay, you're going to suffer, I haven't forsaken you, and all that. But it's right that Devarim is actually very different. And I'd say for Devarim, it's much more of a, a reconciliation of two mutual partners. Which is why you have the shove. You take one step towards me, I'll take a step towards you. You take a step towards me, I'll take a step towards you. And what's very striking is the last shove, the last mashuv, right? The last two of them, actually, right? Um, the last is Kitashuv and Hashem Olokecha Bechalavav Chalavachon Hashecha. That's the last of you will return with all our heart and soul. But the one prior to that in Divine is very striking, and that is towards, towards verse number 10, I believe. 9 or 10, let me see. It's, uh, the Pasuk is. Yes, in verse number nine. Ki Yashuv Hashem lasus alecha l'tov kasher sasa l'avotecha. The Lord will delight in your well-being as God did in that of your fathers. In other words, the idea that God actually is rejoicing, and this is page 441, that God rejoices in you. Ki Yashuv Hashem lasus alecha l'tov kasher sasa l'avotecha. That God will take delight in you and God will rejoice in you. That's very special. And actually, I was thinking that in these weeks that we're in, it's called Shiva Dinechemta. Shiva Dinechemta. You know Shiva Dinechemta? No. So between, Russia, between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, there were seven weeks. The seven weeks, and the seven weeks, there were seven Haftarot that we say. As the custom of Ashkenaz, there are different customs. The custom of Ashkenaz, I think the Sfatim also do this, that there were seven Haftarot seven weeks, the seven Torah readings, and there were seven Haftarot between Tisha B'av and, and, and Rosh Hashanah. The question is, these seven Haftarot, how do they, are they actually, they're all from the same book, they're all from Isaiah, or the second Isaiah, they're all from the second part of Yishayah. The first week is Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, it's consolation, and they move towards, they're moving towards something. What is the last, what is the last Haftarah actually? What is the last Haftorah before, before Rosh Hashanah? Isaiah chapter 61, I believe, is the chapter. How does it start? I talked about my mother's funeral. I talked about this Haftorah, actually. It's the last possible. Soso sis Bashem. Soso sis Bashem. That the last Haftorah is paying off the parasha. I will rejoice in God. Yobishani big day yesha. It's beyond beautiful. It's also really. God has clothed me in robes of majesty. Big big day yesha, righteousness, right? Anyway, the point is, it's actually playing off. It sees, in other words, the Aftorah is picking up. That's how it starts. It picks up on something in the parsha, the idea 
that God delights in you. That's amazing, actually, you know? There's some people, not everybody can do this, some, someone does well, you know? There's some people who have the ability to actually rejoice in someone else's well-being. It's not a small thing, by the way. To actually be, be happy that someone else is doing well. Not to be jealous, not to be angry, not to be morose, whatever. I'm so happy the person does well, you know? It's like, it's amazing, right? So, it's, uh, that's the Haftorah, actually, of the last Haftorah. So there's a, apparently there's some kind of a, the seven weeks of consolation, there's some kind of, uh, it's a build-up to the last week. We actually say this on Yom Kippur. We pick the theme up on Yom Kippur, in one of the piyutim of Yom Kippur, especially built into the davening. Only Yom Kippur, we don't say this Rosh Hashanah, with Yom Kippur we say this. Right after the, right after Kedusha. What do we say? Right after Kedusha. Before Bechain Tein Pachtacha. Bechain Tein Pachtacha, I know it's not that topic actually, but it's related to Rosh Hashanah. Maybe next week I'll talk about it. Before Bechain Tein Pachtacha, which we say Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, there's a little pew we say on Yom Kippur. Chamor Amar Secha. Right, it's just not from ourselves. We say it's awesome, actually. We say, God, have mercy on your creations, the tismach from and rejoice in your creations. So it's exactly this point. We ask God to rejoice in God's creations. Not just to let us, that, but actually to be, to, be, to be happy, happy for us. We're doing well. Isn't that great? So also is doing so well now. So that's exactly the Torah and the Parsha, actually. That's the end of the last shah. God will return and rejoice over you, take delight in you, and and our, our return is our ours is So what's being described here is an interactive process. It's not just yes. In, in Vayikra, you do something, I'll do something. That's a difference. But there's no sense in Vayikra. I think of a real inter, of an interaction between the two parties. Here you have it's it's like a dance. Each one takes a step. Each one steps closer. It's very interesting. Yeshuv and Yeshuv. Yeshuv Hashem. And it's not just one verse. In other words, Vayikra is one verse. They shall confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. But in Devarim, it's at least ten verses long, this process, which for the Chush is pretty long. So it's not a simple thing. Shuv is not just a one, happens at one moment in this parasha. Shuv is a process that takes place over time. It's a whole complicated process, which is the result of where you find yourselves, then wherever it may be, it doesn't matter. It could be in the farthermost corners of heaven. So it strikes me that the vidui of, of Vayikra means something very different. There it sounds like this recognition. It's very important to recognize what's, what's wrong, but it's not the same thing as Bechol Yes? Is there a reason that in Vayikra that Shemitah was picked as of what they were inside. I think so. I think that choosing, I think there are two reasons for it. The choosing of Shemitah as a symbolic mitzvah, um, there's probably more than two reasons for it. That the, but here's, the, here's what I would say about Shemitah being chosen as the symbolic mitzvah. Symbolic. First of all, the main point about Shemitah, this is the Shemitah in Israel. Shemitah is a, it's a big deal in Israel. Here you don't feel it. But it raises a million questions in Israel. Having been there for more than one Shemitah, I can tell you it's, that's a practical matter. It's actually the very deep issues around Shemitah. But Shemitah, let's start with the following. Shemitah is basically Shabbos. That's a very important point. Shemitah is the Sabbath of the land. 
the Shechta Aretz Shabbat Rashem. Now we have to remember that if you're talking about a covenantal mitzvah in the Chumash, there's one. And just one. It's the Shabbos. You open up the book of Exodus, and you see straight up, forget the fact that it's in, 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 in both Ten Commandments, it's the longest mitzvah. The, the main mitzvah of the Ten Commandments is Shabbos, but it, to the tablets of the covenant. But apart from that, not only does it appear in the Ten Commandments, but it appears as a central factor in two other places. First of all, it appears in conjunction with the building of the, of the Mishkan. Both in the instructions to build the Mishkan and the building of the Mishkan, the Torah always attended to Shabbos. Let's start with that. And on top of that, apart from the fact that it's tied into the Mishkan and tied into and the Ten Commandments, and on top of that, it's a central mitzvah of the, of the way in which we live in the desert, which is the mud. You collect your food every day, but on this Sabbath year, on the Shabbat, you can't go out on Shabbat to collect the food. So it means that the Shabbos is a absolutely central mitzvah. It's called the covenant. It's called the sign in the covenant. So therefore, when you're about to enter the land, it's not accidental, I think, that the Torah picks up the um, Shemitah as a, as, a, as, as, as a Sabbath of the land. It's not a small thing. That's a Shemitah, but then you have the Jubilee year as well. And the point of, of the Chumash is very simple, that this land that you're about to possess is in really your land. You're strangers and sojourners with me, it's actually God's land. It's only your land by virtue of the fact that you embrace this idea that doesn't really belong to you. That's very And Shemitah contains within it the idea of the Yoga, which is an unbelievable idea. Yeah. But every 50 years, the land goes, you lose all your land, basically. But, I mean, just think about that, what that means. It's a revolution. The whole society is turned upside down. I mean, it's amazing, really, think about it. So, that is the primary reason, I think, that it's chosen. Uh, again, it's not that Shemitah is um, the only mitzvah. Shemitah represents, I think, the covenant represents the, the, the Sabbath. I think that's the main point. And then there are other parts to Shemitah. Shemitah is the only mitzvah, actually, in the Chumash, which is very relevant nowadays. It appears both in the book of Vayikra and also in Shmos also. It appears primarily in Vayikra. It appears in a different form in Sefer Zavarim. There is not about the land. There is about the annulment of, 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 uh, of debts. Shemitah Kusafim. The only mitzvah, I think, that the Torah, two different places make the same comment, which is very relevant today, which is, don't say to yourselves, this mitzvah is too hard to keep. There's no other mitzvah like this. So the Chumash, both in Vayikra, what are we going to do? How can we eat? We're not going to work the fields. Don't say that, says the Chumash. I know it's difficult. You have a way. And in Sefer Zvarim, where it talks about the Shemitah canceling debts, loans made to the poor, the other Chumash says, and don't say to yourself, the, the Shemitah is coming soon. How can I lend someone money? Remember, lending money in the Bible means you don't lend to rich people. It's not like today. But to get a loan, you've got to be wealthy. In the Chumash, it's the opposite. You lend money only to poor people. It's not about, there's also there's, there's no there's no interest you can charge either it's an interest free loan so it's, it's all about poverty in the Chumash it's not you want to borrow two million dollars or a hundred million dollars to start a business it doesn't work that way someone can't feed his family or something like that so don't say to yourself says the Chumash that uh, Shemitah is coming how can I lend the money I'm going to lose my money don't say that don't, don't do that lend the money and don't worry about it says so, the Chumash is Shemitah, that's why Shemitah today is such a big issue, because it's the one mitzvah the Torah singles out 
first of all, upon which to build a covenant, and secondly, if the one mitzvah the Torah warned us about, we know how hard it is going to be. Now, the Torah probably didn't know about losing market share and all that other stuff, which is... It's where, it's where, it's where Rav... No, it's, it's a problem, actually. It's not a small thing. Rav Kook's heter for Shemitah, which is maybe a necessary evil. I'm not saying he's wrong, but it's a bad thing. Because Rav Kook's heter for Shemitah essentially abolishes Shemitah. Rav Kook's heter for Shemitah is that there is no Shemitah. So that's, that's, that's his heter for it. There is no Shemitah. You simply circumvent it. Now, other people don't like that, and for good reason, but have a better answer. Because the other answers have come with their own problems. That's why Shemitah is very interesting, actually. On a small scale, you can solve the problem, actually, of Shemitah. You can solve the problem, at least I can't figure out a way, no one else has either, to solve the problem on a big scale. But in terms of the Parsha, it's very striking that the one mitzvah the Torah chooses in, in Vayikra, upon which to base the covenant in the Shemitah, and I'll tell you something else in response to your question about why they chose Shemitah. Before that, I want to get to something else about about, about Dvari, which is the other Tokacha. There's also a mitzvah there, too. It's more subtle. It's not explicit as, as, as such. It actually relates to the verse that Suri mentioned earlier. Because you didn't serve God with all your heart, right? And the simcha, you didn't serve God with joy, may Rav call. The pshat is not what the Hasidim say. But the, the Hasidim say you've got to be, be joyous in your service, that's all wonderful, it's all great, but that's not the pshat in the Chumash. What the Chumash is referring to is a particular mitzvah, which is Bikurim. The Chumash is referring there, alluding back to chapter 26, which is the beginning of the covenantal section of Sefer Devarim. And there it says, you shall rejoice in all the good that God has given you. You and the stranger and the widow and the orphan. That's the point. The point is that the goods that God has given you, which is the Bikurim, the first fruits, of, you don't, you, if you don't share it with the others, that's a terrible sin. And the reason it's a terrible sin is because it means you have a bad mindset. You believe that the stuff that you have is actually yours. And the reason you think it's yours in the Book of Divine is a very good reason. Because he did all the work. Bikurim is a mitzvah of giving the first fruits from the land that you work. It's the opposite of Shemitah, if you think about it. Shemitah is an appropriate mitzvah for the first generation. Because what Shemitah means is something doesn't belong to you. Shemitah, you, you observe the Shemitah by doing nothing. By not taking the food. Right? As you, the land is half here. Everybody owns the land. But the Bikurim is talking to someone different. Bikurim is talking to somebody who actually owns the land. It's actually your land. And you left Egypt, or you wandered in the desert, you captured the land, you possessed the land, you worked the land, and now the Torah says, you better give the best to God. So the person might say, why should I do that? I'll give God a share. A minority share, you know, but I did all the work. Okay, yes, the sun is good, and the air and the water, we get very grateful. 30%, but I'm a 70% owner. So the point is, the mitzvah, of, the mitzvah of Bikuri, in other words, the mitzvah in the parallel to Shemitah in the first Talfacha is Bikurim in the second Talfacha. And because the first generation are basically slaves, people that left Mitzrayim, so there's a certain past. Shemitah is a mitzvah that is passively observed, actually. So we're talking about people who can observe things for, we want them to observe things passively, but they, but they can't be considered owners of something. Because they're not that kind of people. They're people who are aggressively take possession. 
These are slaves who are taken out of Egypt by God and God's miracles. It's not true of the second generation. They were never in Egypt in the first place, which is why they can leave Egypt themselves. They don't need God. They can do it themselves. So that's another reason they think. Another significance of the fact that it's Shemitah. But there's more to be said about this. We'll leave that for now. What do you want to say, Suri? Just the role of the heart that you are exercising is also very passive in the Bayi Christ. Right, right. It's negative. It's presented as right. The submission of the, of the hostile heart or the, the, uh, the stubborn heart. It's totally different. I mean, as I said, the expectations in Vayikra are, are limited. I, what I would say is that in terms of ourselves, our own situation, are we more similar to the first Tokho or the second? It depends on the situation. Sometimes in life we find ourselves in places where there's not so much you can do. We find ourselves often in situations where you say you, you have to accept the situation, you can't really do much. And other times we see ourselves in situations where we, say we think we can really make a difference, we can make a change, we have the power to choose, or whatever. So I think the two tochachas, from our perspective, are both very useful tochachas. In terms of the storyline, is one thing, but in terms of our own experience of them, is very different. Now I wanted to begin to talk about the role of confession. It, generally speaking, in our, in our system, more focusing not so much on the text of the Chumrah. Oh, there's one thing else. Was just something else. I'll leave it for now. I'll get to that next week, maybe. But let me talk about. Let's talk about the confession in our in our prayers. As I said before, Rosh Hashanah has no has no confessions. There's no confessions on Rosh Hashanah. It's not a day of repentance. Actually, it's a day where you begin to think about repentance. Here, who Chuba? Because how could you not? You're standing before the judge. Here, the shofar. People call for judgment. So the response, of course, is to begin to begin to tremble, to, to worry, to think about it, but to think about Shuvah, but we aren't quite there yet. The Ramam said it's Remez. Remez was Shofar. What is the Torah? What is the Torah? What, what is the Remez? Isn't the purpose of the Mitzvah? What does the Torah remind us? What does it hint at? It's a wake-up call, the Ramam says. Uri Yushenim Mishinas. And by the way, the Sfardim, Sfardim are very beautiful. The Sfardim starts saying Slichos to Rebosh Kodesh Ewol. They don't wait till the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah. And they have a very famous Bakasha. There's more than one form. There's fun of all kinds of very beautiful prayers, anyway. So, Yudha Levi has one. With the tagline is, Malachan Yudam, Kum Kuralel Echa, so it starts. Why do you sleep? So what this comes from the book of, book, book of Jonah, Jonah. The sailor said to Jonah, What are you sleeping for? Get up and cry to your God. So, Yudha Levi. Has a very, very beautiful bakasha, which introduces the slichol service. What are you sleeping for? You know, get up and get. So picking up what the Rambam is saying about the shofar. Shofar is a wake-up call. Start blowing the shofar. Chodeshevul wakes you up. You know what's right? It's not business as usual. That's the point of the Yudalei. Anyway, I'll get back to something else about the tochach and vayikra. That's extremely interesting about vidui. Maybe next week. But just to, to introduce the following thought. On Yom Kippur, we have in, well, I talked to the Ashkenazim now, and this is part of my case. The Ashkenazim have three Viduyim on Yom Kippur. Three. Three different kinds of Viduyim. The first two are very straightforward. One is called the long Viduyim, and one is the short Viduyim. The short Viduyim is a small little, I the plastic, a shamlu. That's one. 
Then there's a second vidui called the Alchet. It goes on forever. It's also an acrostic. It's, it mentions particular sins, although most of the sins that it mentions, some are very specific, some are more general. general. And those, are, those viduim are recited on Yom Kippur, for example, in all of the services except one. In all of the services, Hashanah said every service. And in fact, there's also the custom to say this vidui, even Mincha before Yom Kippur. Mincha before Yom Kippur, you say vidui. The classical service I'm talking about. And you say it, Mairif and Shachris and Musaf and Mincha. When it comes to the Iwa, it's very striking, then we don't say Alchait. There's no Alchait in the Iwa. And instead of Alchait in the Iwa, we say something else, which is very short. And the Gemara speaks about this as the confession to the Iwa. Very beautiful prayer, a striking prayer. It begins with the words, Maybe next week I'll bring it and I'll show you. It's a short prayer. You extend your hand out to the sinners. That is the main prayer of, 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 of Me'ira. It's a short paragraph. The next paragraph begins with the words, You have set the human being aside from the very beginning and recognized that the human can stand before you. That, that actually, the Gemara says, is the confession for, for, for the Hewa. So there are these confessions that we are saying, the long and the short one, which is said virtually every prayer. And then suddenly in the Hewa, instead of the long confession of al we scrap that. And we have a different vidui called Atanotein Yad Poshim. I'd like to talk about that next week. But before we get to that, I want to mention another interesting, very interesting Vidui, a custom that the Jewish people have, the Sardim and the Ashkenazim, um, have a different, interesting custom as Yom Kippur begins. I actually just we ran a program in Israel. I gave a shear about Kol Nidre, which is actually very interesting. Some different insights into Kol Nidre that I've been thinking about. Kol Nidre is very interesting, actually. I'll tell you why. Because Kol Nidre, first of all, the Gemara. This is a digression, but that's important. Kol Nidre, in the Gemara mentions Kol Nidre, actually. It sounds in the Gemara. The Gemara mentions a different context, completely different. Gemara says the following. Before the new year, before Rosh Hashanah, a person gets up and says, Kol Nidre, Be'estare, all of the vows I took in the previous year, should be annulled. That's the way most of the commentaries read the Gemara. That makes sense. We have such a we have such a custom called Hataras Nadarim. There is a custom. Many people do before Rosh Hashanah, maybe in the morning, the day before, the week before, whatever. They stand in front of a little court, maybe their friends or whatever it is, and they read this text which says, "I annulled the vows of the previous year," and the court is listening or whatever says, "It's annulled. It's annulled. It's annulled." You're forgiven. Such a custom exists. And many people do it. Called Hatarat Nadarim. It's done before Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara mentions it. The Gemara does not mention a knowing vows before Yom Kippur. doesn't mention it. Furthermore, Kol Nidre, as we know it, it's not really a nullification of vows. I mean, it's a ceremony. It's not really, the, it's not really a, I mean, it's, it takes the form of a court. Three, three people usually, but it's, it's not really, it's a, it's a ceremonial nullification. 
But there's something else interesting about Kol Nidre. You know, if someone says to you, where are you going to be for Kol Nidre? What, what that means is, they don't mean where you be for Kol Nidre. They mean where you're dabbing Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur night. We call the dabbing Yom Kippur night Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre night. But Kol Nidre, first of all, is said before Yom Kippur. Let's start with that. What's up? What really Kol Nidre? The dabbing Yom Kippur, Kol Nidre is accustomed to say Kol Nidre. We wouldn't know what it is. Accustomed, by the way, that's in history. history, history. There's an enormous amount of resistance to saying Kol Nidre, and not just the German Jews of the 19th century. The Gaonim were against it, for the most part. They rail against it. The Minnesotans don't do it. It doesn't help. It means they're doing it because they're fighting against it. Amram Gaon, what, 8th century, 9th century, rails against it. Don't, don't do it, don't say it. So it's an, ancient, it's an interesting custom. It persists. No matter what anybody says, it persists. But to the degree that Kol Nidre, we see Kol Nidre as actually part of Yom Kippur service. We see it as essential to Yom Kippur. Whereas, if it's A, done before Yom Kippur, and B, we don't know why it's central at all. It's a ceremonial nullification of vows. What? That's very interesting. But here's the thing that's curious about Kol Nidre, which is, it's another custom which is less, probably less observed. Kol Nidre is observed by everybody, basically. Yeah, anybody with a shul calls Kol Nidre. I mean, Kol Nidre. There's actually another interesting custom that the Sardim, even more than the Ashkenazim, have. And there's an interesting custom. That is that just before Kol Nidre, they say Vidri. They, say, they, they confess their sins before Kol and there are many different confessions written for, for this. The Ashkenazim also do it, different throughout. But the Sephardim have, have it in some of the Sidurim, some Sephardic master, you'll see that very often they have printed a Vidui just before Kol Nidre. The most, probably the most popular and famous one, Chaim Sabato in his book, in one of his books, he mentions this particular Vidui. It's very, it's very beautiful. It's written by the... Uh, anybody know? The Vidui before Kol Nidre. No, Tzviluzak is, is, is very Ashkenaz. Yeah. It's, and it's not for women either, by the way. <laughs> if you read it, you'll see why. What is... It's, 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 it's not for women. But the point is, if you write about Tzviluzak, Tzviluzak is actually powerful. Tzviluzak is for a different reason. Maybe I'll mention it in a second. But the, 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 the famous Sephardic poem, Tzviluzak's Confession, before Kol Nidri. Who, who wrote it? Anybody know? Famous Jew. The uh, Ibn Ezra brothers. So the Ibn Ezra has a start on the Eli Tishukati. If you Google it, you will see there's many different tunes for it. Eil Banai has one tune for it. It's not bad. Of course, some of these Sephardic tunes are very different in different musical system. But anyway, Luchar Eli Tishukati is a very powerful visually. It's often, it's, if you open up a Sephardic mark, you see for yourselves, it's printed in the master just before Kornidre. So, of course, you, the, the one who pushed this very strongly, and among others, was the Ramban. The Ramban writes about saying Vidui as Yom Kippur begins. The degree to which, and Yom Kippur begins with, 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 with of course, we say before Kornidre, not after Kornidre. Of course, for us, Kornidre actually begins Yom Kippur. The whole thing is mind boggling. We don't know why Kornidri came to Yom Kippur in the first place, <coughs> but that's where it is. In any event, so now we have a different practice. There's a Vidui, we say Mincha before Yom Kippur, 
striking. We mincha yom kippur is davened earlier, before you eat the meal, and you say vidui. Maybe we'll talk about it next week as well. And then there's another custom to say vidui as you begin yom kippur. The Ibn Ezra's Chayyuit to Shukati. Tzviro Zaka, I'll mention my answer, I'll say to the Tzviro Zaka. is the following, among other things. Tzviro Zaka makes the following point. So during the past year, I did many things wrong. Often they were not a result of uh, being a bad person, they were a result of doing things in a, without, without thinking. Or under, 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 under a lot of pressure, made mistakes. Tirdat Hazman, I didn't have the time, I didn't think it through, I was pressured, etc. Did many bad things. I know every time I do a sin, I create evil angels. Evil angels, right? And then you go on. No, no, not even that's enough. This is the famous Ashkenazi, one of, one of the Ashkenazic. Uh, I'm asking God to forgive me and have mercies on me, etc. <coughs> it's one of the main points of Tzilo Zaka. Somebody once said to me, probably the other problems of Tzilo Zaka, what? Do you believe in these angels? Well, they would be evil angels, but... So I said, of course. Of course I believe in them. Very important, actually. Very important. Well, the most important thing you say on Yom Kippur is Tzilo Zaka. Not, I don't actually believe that, but, but the point is, I mean, the idea is really important. So please explain. So it's very simple because we are, people do bad things all the time, make mistakes. Not bad people, we make mistakes. And very often, people say, "Well, my kids, why did you do that? I'm sorry, I did it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I did it. Okay, I'm glad you're sorry. But how does it help the other guy that you're sorry? Who cares? Don't tell me you're sorry because I don't actually care if you're sorry. How does that change anything? You do a bad thing. Hurt somebody's feelings. Okay. You're sorry. You, you set into motion a, set, a chain of events that you can't control. Right? You did, gave some bad advice. They took your bad advice and they got into big trouble. One form or another. Personal, financial, whatever it is. You're sorry you did it. Okay. This guy's in deep trouble now because of you and you're sorry. Who cares? That's a very important point, actually. That's, that's, God, I'm very sorry I did it. I'm glad you're sorry, Davido. I got 50,000 angels in the next room. What are we going to do with them? That's the point. That's the point of Tzvi Lozaka. To appreciate with Tshuva, the grace of Tshuva, you have to understand something. You create a reality. That, that's the point of Tshuva, the main point of Tzvi Lozaka. You create a reality that you actually can't take back. You can try to take it back. You can try to correct it. You can never do it again. You can do a million things. But it's very hard to undo the reality that we have created. That's the power. That's the vidu of Chilo Zaka. Takes us into Yom Kippur to appreciate what this thing's really about. To say the words is very easy. But to deal with the effects of our behavior is not so simple. Sometimes it's next to impossible. Anyway, that's the, that's the vidu of Chilo Zaka. So next week I'd like to look at these viduyim. There's something else I forgot to talk about, about the vidu in the Chumash. And then we'll move on either to the structure of the Yom Kippur service or we're concerned to really, maybe the last week, to grapple with what is this vidui actually about. Why, why is it important to confess? What role does confession, if you feel bad, that's not good enough, not going to do it again. Well, how does confession help us? That'd be the third year. Okay, stop here then. All right.